Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about decisions. In particular, making the hard decision to take the risky path rather than the comfortable one. And I can't think of anyone better to join me in this conversation than Kendra Banks, Managing Director at Seek. I was fortunate to work with Kendra back in 2019 and hear some of her journey. And it really is a journey of choosing the right path in the face of resistance. So how does she do it? And how has it shaped the kind of leader that she is now? I'll give her a call to find out. Hello. Hi. We'll do it live. Do it live. I can all write it and we'll do it live. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Joining me on the phone is Kendra Banks. Kendra leads Seek's employment and learning businesses across Australian New Zealand markets, encompassing Seek, Seek Learning and Career Services, Seek Business, Grad Connection, and Seek Volunteer. Prior to her career at Seek, she held a series of marketing commercial roles within the retail sector, including at Coles in Australia and Tesco in the UK. She commenced her career in strategy as a consultant with McKinsey & Company. Kendra holds a master's in European politics at the College of Europe, where she was a Fulbright scholarship recipient. Prior to this, she completed a Bachelor of Economics and Mathematics at Yale University, which is extremely impressive. Kendra, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you. Great to be here. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. We were um, scheduled for a couple of weeks ago to kind of jump into this conversation. And uh, this is the world we're living in. You had the opportunity to jump on a flight for the first time. <laughs> How was that? I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's, um, it's April 2021. And um, having been a person who traveled once or twice a month, I've, I've, I've spent 14 months not going anywhere. So the first trip on a plane was delightful. I was, um, I enjoyed getting on the plane. I enjoyed the boarding pass. I enjoyed checking in my luggage. It was just great. Since when has anybody ever enjoyed the process of travel after, um, obviously it gets taken away from us, all the things we used to hate and now the things we're looking forward to. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a bit strange. I did have my children with me, so it wasn't quite the, uh, uh, you know, kick back in the lounge with a glass of wine, tra- uh, travel that that I prefer. But uh, it, it was it was nice in the, nice in any event and great to get away. Hey, well, I'd love to get people uh, give people a chance to get to know you a little bit. So we asked three fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Sure. So I was born in California. I was actually born in a house that is right next to now the Google campus. Though at the time, wow. Google didn't exist. The founders weren't even born yet. Do you wish you held on to that house just a little bit longer? Yeah, my parents certainly do. <laughs> yeah, they really do. Uh, but no, at the time, it was just a sleepy little town. My first job was when I was 12 or 13 years old, babysitting for the neighbor's kids. Of course, now that I have a 13-year-old of my own, I'm horrified at the thought that anyone <laughs> left me as a 13-year-old in charge of their of their family. Uh, and today, I'm doing something totally different. I'm the managing director for SEEK. Australia, New Zealand. Uh, for your listeners who might not know, Seek is Australia's and New Zealand's leading jobs platform. I, I love that you say that for those people who don't know, for those people who don't know, have probably been hiding underneath a rock for a long time. Seek is such a well-known brand uh, here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, like, Give us some of the, I guess, the quick um, headlines of what Seek does, what Seek's kind of all about. 
Sure. So, um, our, I mean, our main purpose, we do a number of things, what we'd call human capital technology space. But the main um, the main product that we have is obviously our jobs board, where uh, we are the leading source of placements in Australia and New Zealand. So about a third of all Australians or Kiwis who change jobs in any one year say that they found their job on seat. Wow. That's a that's a huge percentage of people that are in the job market. It is. We're really proud of that. And we really we're really driven at Seek by our purpose, which is to help people live more fulfilling and productive working lives and help organizations succeed. And for us, the placement moment when somebody gets a new job is really powerful. And we love that we can be part of that. Yeah, I think people may be familiar with Seek because of the potentially the job postings they've probably applied to their current role. Chances are most likely it's through Seek that they applied for their current role. Um, but there's so much more that Seek does behind the scenes, especially in the space of, of women in tech. And I think there's so many mm-hmm. things that you're so passionate about there. Like what are some of the big things that you're doing outside of what maybe people already know about Seek? Sure. So we're really passionate about using um, the relationships we have with all of the employers who advertise on our site to help them create better workforces, whether that a particular diversity push, for example, and women in tech is a great example. Uh, women are underrepresented in in a lot of tech functions. And so we work with a lot of uh, advertisers on our site on how can they write job ads that are more inclusive? How can they use processes in hiring to reduce the unconscious bias uh, that that everyone holds against against people who are different to themselves? How can we um, uh, support hirers to more proactively seek out candidates of different uh, backgrounds or or different genders or different different backgrounds that they're looking to hire. So we we really um, we're lucky with the position we have in the market to be able to see what's happening on a really broad scale and to help and support hires to make changes where where they can. From my understanding, you you've got an incredible group of people that are developing technology to help combat some of the things that. Like as human beings, we have, you know, these unconscious bias, we have things that we do that we're not aware of, and that it could be impacting our ability to be able to solve some of these problems, like recruiting more women in tech. But you're, from mm. my understanding, you've got people that are actually working towards to combat some of that bias in the way that your technology and platform works, right? Yes, that's right. So a lot of what happens behind the scenes is uh, driven by artificial intelligence. So the site looks very simple. You see, you see a job ad, you click on it and apply. What's happening behind the scenes is, well, who is seeing which job? How do we present candidates to hires in a way that helps them make better decisions? And a lot of that is driven by artificial intelligence. We've got teams of data scientists who are working to make sure that the way we facilitate placements is done in as unbiased a way as possible. So there's quite often, um, you know, sort of scare stories in the media about how AI is biased. And that is absolutely right if AI is being trained on a biased data set. So what we're working on, we've got teams of people who are thinking about the ethics of AI, who are testing um, the decisions, um, proposals that AI is making, uh, that what comes out of our data is better than what humans uh, would make from a perspective of bias. It's incredible. We quite often look at what's, what's wrong with the algorithm, but we forget that, humans are actually quite biased as a starting point. So how can we use data in a way that helps uh, encourage people to make less biased decisions? It's so incredible because, again, we see the front-facing side of Seek, which is we're applying for a job. We don't actually see what goes in behind all of that that makes it up. And, Mm. you know, I think you're in a position where, you know, when people ask me the question, you know, who are some of the great female leaders um, that come to mind for you? You are just one of those people that just in in many ways are just a great leader and your journey, it seems like into the tech space, which is typically underrepresented by women, you're in a, in a quite senior position. 
question. So I think it would be helpful for us to understand a bit of your journey to get to where you are now. Maybe take us back, maybe not to the babysitting days, but maybe take us back <laughs> a little bit yeah. after that that kind of helped you kind of chart your course to where you are now. Sure. Thanks. Yes. Babysitting is probably the only job I've ever done where there's more uh, females than males in the profession. Um, so I, um, I guess, I mean, a lot of my path can kind of be explained by I've, I've taken a route where I was often one of the few females in the room. And that started when, uh, when I was at university and I studied economics, which a lot of people were studying economics and it was relatively gender balanced as a, as a group. However, one of my professors suggested I take the mathematics track and I do an econ math sort of combined major. And there, there were about 20 of us doing that. And there were only two of us who were women. Wow. And, and I guess from that, that moment on realized that some of the path that I was taking would be often uh, one of the few females in the room. Um, and that and that did did come true. I mean, in, I started in strategy consulting. I think I was, again, one of two women in the entry group of consultants. Um, I worked in strategy for a few years. I then moved into e-commerce and digital business and uh, took on a more commercial track through retail as well. So I, I had digital marketing roles and ran pricing and did other commercial strategy roles. There's a, been a lot of examples in my career where, where I was one of the only women in the room or where... Um, it seems to be a pretty consistent theme in the rooms that you're showing up in is that these fields <laughs> tend to be dominated by by men. So like take me into mm. some of these environments that you're in. You show up and you're, you know, one of the fewer women in these roles. Like what goes through your mind in those situations? Does it does it intimidate you? Do you have to make an intentional decision somewhere about how you show up in that space? What's what was it like? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good question. I think it's one say my personal experience, but I think the average experience that women are having has changed a lot over time. So in the 23 or 24 years uh, that I've been working, the recognition of why diversity is important, about how to create inclusive environments, and therefore the experience that individual uh, women or any underrepresented group is facing day to day, I think is quite different to how I would have experienced it. So I actually feel lucky when I look back to think, well, actually quite a lot's moved on since that period of time. Um, you know, and I was speaking with a, a friend who's a, a very, um, very experienced lawyer on the weekend. And she was talking about experiences she had where, you know, there's a lot of sexual innuendo, where she was asked to make the coffee, where clients were requesting her presence on the weekend because she was an attractive young female lawyer. I, I didn't have too many experiences like that. But what I would say is when you are the, one of few females in the room dominated by men, you often feel like your voice is not being heard. And that is something we still hear from women today. There's been various surveys that a lot of women say that they feel like their voice is less valued than men in the room. And that's something, whereas I think overall the experience has changed, that feeling is probably still real for a lot of women in rooms where they are underrepresented. Did you feel like that for you in some of those experiences? Because I know you did um, work with, uh, in that, did you say that consulting space at one point? Mm. Um, you were in law, like in terms of not in law, you were in... No, sorry, that was my friend who I was referring to who was in law. No, so I was in strategy consulting, consulting. Uh, retail, e-commerce and, and commercial pricing roles. So did you feel like even though the experience looked different, that still that feeling of getting your voice heard in a room, was it challenging for you? What was that like? It is. I think, you know, when you're when you're growing as a professional, getting your voice heard is always a concern. So if you feel like you're on the back foot to begin with, because you're in an underrepresented group, whether that's women or, or another group, you do feel like there's a bit of an extra burden to get your, to learn how to have your voice heard. Mm. I'm not the most outspoken, outgoing person. I'm not the loudest person in the room by nature. So I did have to think about how I would grow my voice and grow my impact in a way that just wasn't 
literally being loud. That makes sense. I love that thought. Over the years, probably spent time thinking about how, even if I wasn't feeling the most confident, how I could present my points in a way that sounded confident, or how could I pose a question that moved the discussion forward if I wasn't quite sure what the right answer was, or how could I use other tactics to be heard and have an impact that were beyond just being loud. Yeah. I reckon what you've just touched on there would resonate with a lot of people, not necessarily just women, but um, people who are in that position and looking to grow their influence, whether they're on a leadership team or they're working and aspiring to be on a leadership team, but they feel like they, you know, it's not necessarily that they lack the confidence, but it's just that sense of being uh, able to know that they're not the extroverted, loud, necessarily charismatic person in the room, but how do they still influence the discussion, influence the decisions and have that and grow their presence and grow their influence. Um, was there a time where you felt like that wasn't easy for you and what did you do to kind of move past that? Were there people that helped you kind of develop in this area? Was it something you just had to practice and get better at over time? Yeah, I think I had to build my, there were definitely times when I felt that way. When I look back, I think I had to build my conviction about why I was there. So I often, when I've spoken with people I mentor about this type of issue, what I say to them is if you've been invited to a meeting, if you are in the room with very rare exceptions, it's because you are bringing a point of view that nobody else is bringing. And that is true for very junior people or very inexperienced people as well. A moment that I can remember from quite early in my consulting career, I was the lowest hierarchy person on the project. I was the person doing all the, the kind of data analytics racing around. And we were presenting all this information to the client. And one of the very senior clients drew a conclusion that was just completely wrong based on the data. So I was sure that he had just misheard because it was so obviously not right if he had read the information. The reason I was there is because I actually knew that information. I had been the one creating that specific data point. So I spoke up and said, no, well, actually, I think that's not the correct conclusion to draw because the data says X, Y, Z. And at the time, all of the more senior people in the room couldn't believe that I had challenged one of the most senior clients because I was sort of uh, the young newbie. But the conviction came from knowing that I had a reason to be there, which was, well, I actually understood the detail and also the conviction that I, it was my responsibility to speak up if the discussion was going off track and I had information that, that would put it back on track. Mm. So I think for me, it was about understanding, well, why am I there? What specific value do I bring? And knowing that I wasn't really doing my job if I didn't contribute that at the right time and in the right way. I love that. Even for people who are, you know, it can be quite intimidating to be brought into a meeting where you are the most junior person in the room. But the reason that you're brought in there, there's a very specific purpose as to why you're in the room. So allowing that conviction. So how do you balance then you know, what you just said is like being able to challenge someone in a way, it's not always necessarily challenging them. You mentioned also maybe asking questions or what do you do when you're kind of starting to build this conviction and you've got something to contribute, mm. but you're just not really sure. Do I challenge? Do I come, do I come out and challenge this or do I, now how do you start to kind of massage those conversations? Sure. Well, I think the typical answer that I think most women would probably give you to this question is, well, you've done your homework. You know, I always did well in school. I always did my homework. I'm always very well prepared for virtually any meeting or situation. And you find that is true with a lot of high achieving people, particularly women at any age, that they have done their homework. So you you know the answer, you know it's there. And if you can build the conviction that your role is to share the answer, then that's a good, a good starting point. For me, what was trickier is the more senior you get, the less sure you are of any answer because the problems get more complicated. There's no one right answer. There's always pros and cons to any decision. So how do you contribute when you don't actually know what the right answer is, when doing your homework didn't get you there. And there I've really, something that's worked for me over the years is really drawing on the power of collaboration. 
Well, one thing I can bring is helping us as a group get all the right information on the table and helping us as a group structure up the issue that we're debating and helping us as a group get to what we all feel the best answer is in the circumstances. I love this because if this isn't the perfect example of like the older we get, the less we know, <laughs> that feeling of mm-hmm. like the more um, the more information I learn, the wiser I get, the, the more that I feel like I don't know about certain things. And I had this conversation mm. with someone recently. If you think about most of the things that we promote in new leaders, we promote them based on their contribution most of the time. It's like, how have they been able to contribute to the conversation? How have they shown up? But yet when we find ourselves in more senior leaders, positions of leadership, we're actually recognizing that my job is not to contribute. My job is to bring out the contribution of others. And my my biggest challenge, we often say, well, what if I don't know the answer to a question? And my kind of reframing of that is, well, what if you do know? How do you withhold what you know for a moment to allow others the space to be able to speak and contribute? Because it might hold up a mirror to to say, I actually didn't know when I thought I did. Mm, Absolutely. And I think if all of us in the business world or in the organization world, if we're serious about diversity and inclusion, the most obvious way that that comes up day to day is when you're in a meeting of people and they're from different backgrounds and they have different points of view and different experiences is making sure all those points of view are on the table and understood and become part of the problem solving process. So I think it's a really um, kind of goes back to the previous conversation about diversity. If as a leader, you're not doing that, I think you are failing in your accountabilities for creating an inclusive environment. I love that. On the podcast last year, I was able to interview Michael Bungestania. He wrote the book called The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. And he talked a lot about this idea of how do I step out of the spotlight or step out of the space to allow others to step into it? And I loved that thought. And I know you naturally as a leader are so collaborative. I've, I've spoken to people on your team and they say that about you and I, we've had a chance to talk and I mm-hmm. just see that in you. And so what does it look like as a leader? And I would say, again, knowing that your unique perspective that you'll bring to this as being you know, a woman in leadership, what does it look like to step out of the space to allow others to contribute? Or what does it look like to be able to create a more collaborative environment in our teams? What are some of the big things mm. you're doing intentionally to hear those diverse voices or hear those diverse perspectives in your meetings? Yeah. I think the first thing is getting the right people in the room to start with. So if we're on a, dealing with a specific issue and a specific question, who are the people who are going to have the best information or perspectives to share on that? And doesn't necessarily mean the most senior people in the business, and it doesn't necessarily mean the closest experts in the business, but it might be people who will take a really different point of view and who will challenge the prevailing wisdom. So if I think of sort of day-to-day examples around Seek, we are often trying to improve our products for our customers. and there's always more that we would like to do than we have resource to actually deliver. So how do we prioritize that? Well, it's really important that we've got our strategy team in the room because they've got a very clear point of view on what, how we're going to be successful as a business and what are the key strategic building blocks. But it's also important that we've brought the customer's voice in the room. And whether that's through uh, some of our UX research team or whether that's through our customer insight uh, team who sits in marketing, bringing in or our sales team who talk to our our clients day in, day out. Somebody who can bring quite often the literal voice of the customer into the conversation will help us make sure that we're making decisions that are rounded. And it goes back to what you said before is like recognizing that if you're in the room, you're there for a specific reason. You've been brought in because you have a perspective to bring to the conversation and you're there because we want to hear your voice ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, as a leader, I think it's one of the challenges in trying to create a collaborative environment 
you want everybody's voices, but it's impossible to run an organization with everybody having a point of view. <laughs> so how you, uh, how you bring the right people in the room, ensure that the discussion is managed in an inclusive way that everyone has a chance to share their, their point of view on specific questions, that people feel like it's okay to say, I don't know, or this is the thing that's bothering me without really being able to name it, that that environment exists. But that at the right time, as a leader, you're kind of calling in and saying, well, this is the way mm. forward. Because you can't obviously live in an endless endless cycle of everyone sharing points of view and, and asking questions. Yeah, and it's a really nice kind of summary and, and really practical for people who are leading teams, whether that's at a senior level within the organization, even just leading your team at a lower position within the organization, creating an environment where everyone can have their voice heard and perspective shared, whilst at the same time recognizing that you need to lead that conversation and make a decision and take responsibility for the decisions that are being made. So it's a balance of, of being able to be collaborative mm-hmm. in nature, but also decisive as a leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and knowing when, when to call it and when to let the dis- discussion go. So that is uh, an art, not a science. You know, there, there are days when we're dealing with a really tricky issue and I kind of feel like everything's out on the table and it's just not obvious to me or to anyone else in the group what the right way forward is. And then we maybe all just sleep on it and, and pick it up the next day. Or sometimes actually speed is of the essence. And yes, we might only have 80% of the information on the table. We've just got to make a call and go with it because the consequences of waiting are worse than the consequences of being wrong. Mm. I was working with a team a couple of years ago and we were coming up with some kind of cultural mantras for their for their leadership team. And one of the ones that they came up with was this phrase of know when to hold them, know when to fold them, like, which was just that idea. They, they found this sense of going like, sometimes we've got to know when we've got to dig in and fight for our perspective. And other times mm-hmm. we've got to know when it's like, okay, it's time to fold. Like we've got to make a decision here because we need to actually make progress in the, in this. So again, yeah. like it's coming back to that, um, those rules of working together. Um, I'm yeah. interested to hear your perspective because obviously this is, you know, you've gone on such what you would describe as the risky path where you've been in environments mm. consistently throughout your journey that have been, uh, that have looked different. So, so maybe you're kind of the, one of the few women in the program or you're in the environment um, the risky path is not always the easy path. And I think that's mm. one of the things that I, I know we've talked a lot about in mm-hmm. the past. What have been some of those big challenges or those roadblocks along that way for you that you kind of need to overcome? Yeah, yeah you're right. I think, um, to be honest, I think I'm just kind of attracted to doing difficult, big things. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think it's more satisfying to get something big done. It can often be as hard to get something big done than to, as to get something small done, depending on how you frame it. So and so it's much... Big? So why not, why not just go big? And relatively early in my career, when I was in a marketing role, I was trying to, I can't remember exactly the program, but we were working on, but I was trying to get more, more customer orders for a certain product. And I was talking to my boss and we talked about like two or three things. And he said to me, unless you do something that is 20 times the size of what you're talking about, you are not going to move the dial. And he's right. You can do all these little things and maybe they add up to, you know, a point here, or a point there. But if you really want to, you know, double your sales or think big and and really grow your business, you've got to do something quite significant and dramatic that makes people take notice. I've always thought that from a business perspective, that you're always better off doing something big, committing to it, doing it right and sticking to it. And I suppose I've probably applied that to my career uh, as well, that if you have a choice of a couple of paths, the higher risk, higher reward is probably the one to take. And you just have to get yourself comfortable with that thinking. The whole idea of the easy path versus the risky path versus the right path is kind of this one that people would be wrestling with regularly. So for example, going, you know, let's talk about your journey. You you said you've got, you know, three boys, you've got children. Mm. 
like that in itself to be doing what you're doing now in a role like you're in now and, you know, having family in the process of all of that is definitely one of those paths. that's not the easy path, right? Like there's, there's so much mm. kind of challenge, especially for women in leadership. How have you, how did you navigate that journey? Yeah, I think I navigated it. First of all, kind of to my, my previous point, I do think this is something that has gotten easier for any parent over the last 20 years. Um, there is just much more recognition about work-life balance, about what it takes to be a working parent or working person with caring responsibilities mm. in any way, shape or form. I feel like the conversation and the support that employers give to parents is just miles beyond what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. But you're right. It wasn't necessarily the easiest path. For me, part of it was just having the conviction that if we want to have a truly diverse business, leadership, whatever the organization is, that includes women and that includes mothers. And if I, I've always enjoyed my jobs. Um, I really get a lot of personal satisfaction from working hard and from delivering good work, but you just have to have the conviction that you'll make it work. And once you've got that conviction, then you say, okay, well, yes, there's going to be a lot of logistical situations that I need to figure out. And there's going to be a lot of days when I'm juggling five things at once. I will have to make sacrifices potentially in my personal time that when I get home, I don't, you know, sit back and relax for a couple hours. I actually walk in the door, drop my bag, go up and change my clothes so I can deal with the kids, you know, bath time, <laughs> bedtime routines, yep. uh, cleaning up the kitchen, et cetera. You know, there's just a bit of just life, isn't commitment it? To, to getting it done. Yeah, there's life outside of work. <laughs> I think if you've got the belief that this is the life that you want, then those kinds of trade-offs are easier. And I always had that conviction that being an ambitious working parent was the life that I wanted. Yeah. And one of the things, themes that I've, I've heard, and I know about you and you've used the word quite a number of times in this conversation is this word conviction. And I think most of the kind of themes that I'm hearing coming through is there's, if you're going to decide between taking what is an easier path, which might Mm. be the the well-worn path or the riskier path, you know, risk, danger, challenge, obstacles, you've got to have conviction if you're going to take that path. Um, And in, in the same way, you know, when you decide, okay, I'm going to be a working parent, it's got to have the conviction that says this is actually what I want to do in order to be able to deal with the logistical <laughs> outcomes yeah. Yeah. of taking that path. Yeah. So just because it's yeah. a, a risky path doesn't mean it's an easy path. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you make mistakes on the way and you learn from those mistakes. And I think we've, we've spoken before about what actually, and when I talked about my path, I, I skipped over a piece of my, my career journey, which was I went and worked for uh, international not-for-profit for a couple of years. And I was filled with conviction about that. (laughs) I was filled with conviction that that was the right thing, uh, the right way for me to have an impact on the world and to build my career. I thought that was absolutely the right decision. And it wasn't easy. You know, I took a big pay cut. I was, you know, leaving behind a lot of the support network I had had in my previous roles. And actually what what ended up happening was for various reasons, it wasn't the right Mm -hmm. career decision for me. And while I had massive respect for the organization I was working for, I didn't feel like I was really making the right impact. And I didn't see how I was going to build my career there like I thought I would. So it's not to say that conviction is always always right. Um, You know, that's an example for me where I just made the wrong decision. And it's easy to see in in retrospect, but that actually helped build my confidence about what, what what the right path would look like for me. It's the, the conviction to take a path, but also the, the wisdom to know when to leave it. Like is, yes. is kind of what I'm hearing. This is like 
hold on to it, but also on the process of that, know when, okay, it's time to fold. Like it's actually, that's, that, you yes. know, got all the connection right. in the world to maintain it, but then if it's genuinely not it, it actually, it's actually okay to let some of those things go. That's right. Yeah. And to learn from the mistake. And, you know, we, we often think you have to be right all the time to be a competent person, but actually that was an example where being wrong helped me become much more competent because I knew what I didn't want. And I was much more crystal clear about what I did want and where I felt I could be the best I could be. Sounds a bit trite, but that's what it was. <laughs> but that's, that's something even in your, your leadership now, how do you deal with being wrong when people are looking to you as the leader? Like, cause again, like this is the part <laughs> of the process, right? You're not always going to get it right. How do you deal with it yeah. when you don't? Oh, I just admit it. <laughs> you just say, you say, oh, well, first of all, what, how do we define right and wrong? So that's the first thing. Do we have a clear, clear definition of what we're trying to go for? Because there's always consequences, which are no decision is 100% right and 100% wrong in business. There's always some consequences that are on either side. If we're clear about what those consequences are, then we say, well, this is the tolerance we're willing. We have tolerance for these risks. And if they happen, they happen. And yes, it's not great, but we know that the bigger prize is more important. If we didn't see those risks coming, then well, let's review it together. Should we have seen those risks coming? Were the risks raised and we didn't take them seriously enough? What process did we go through that we could have gotten to a better outcome? And you know, if you're making collaborative decisions, you're also making reviewing them collaboratively. So the key thing is not just me saying, I made a decision, I'm wrong. It's, well, we didn't get the outcome we thought we were going to get. Mm. You know, I own that. I'm not blaming, I own that decision because as the leader, I own that decision, but let's review what we could have done differently. And I'm part of that, that review saying, well, what could we have done uh, differently? What is it that you love about what you're doing now? Because obviously you're in a really great position. You've, you've built this really collaborative team. Like what is it that you love about doing what you do now? I love the people I work with. So it's an honor to work with interesting, smart, motivated people who all really care about the purpose that Seek is delivering. And, we, you know, we do our regular employee engagement surveys at Seek like any organization does. And with, and always at the top of what, why do, what's the best thing about working at Seek? The people, the people, the people, the people. It's always the people. Mm. Um, and I think that's true in many organizations. You know, we're social creatures and we feed off the energy of others. And that's definitely true. Definitely true at a place like Seek. Uh, and then we've got the, the, you know, a couple of other things, which I absolutely love. The first is we're, um, you know, we're solving problems. We're trying to solve problems that, that nobody's really tried to solve before. You know, there's lots of issues in the job searching process. Nobody likes looking for a job. Nobody likes hiring people. It's always difficult when you're trying to find the right person for your organization. There's so much more that we can be doing to make that process and experience better for job seekers and for hirers. And having those kind of big challenging questions where there's no right answer is really, um, it's very stimulating. I'm looking back and I'm kind of thinking through where this conversation has gone and, and I'm seeing these kind of emerging themes coming through. The first one is this idea of like, have the conviction to take the hard path rather than just defaulting to the easy path, even though it's more challenging and at times can actually be, you know, it can come with fear, it can come with risk and it can come with, you know, obstacles, but have the conviction to just to walk that path show up and don't hold back and contribute when you've been invited to be on that path or when you've been invited to be in that conversation, contribute, don't be silent, actually recognize you're there for a, for a purpose. The third one is around like, be okay to change when you need to. You don't need to stay on that path. If it's not working, take responsibility for that. And most importantly, collaborate, which is just bring mm -hmm. other people into the conversation and share the 
share the discussion, share the, the, the ideas, the brainstorming, and also share the responsibility for the outcomes um, whilst at the same time leading and taking responsibility for that. Is that kind of what I'm yeah. hearing in this conversation, these big yeah, things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a very, very good summary from my, my rambles over the past half hour. You know, probably what I'd add to it is that's what makes it enjoyable is the collaboration yeah. for me. You know, I, th- and that may not be true for for everybody. Some people do prefer to be individual contributors and really, you know, get more satisfaction from working uh, working solo and delivering something on their own. For me, it's been the most valuable and rewarding parts of my careers have been when we've you know been in a collaborative group. We've had that conviction to do the big, the yeah. big bold things, the risky things, and we've spent the time to think through the right way to do it and have the conviction to go for it. It's such a nice kind of, uh, I guess, leading us into the kind of bringing this co- this conversation into land. I imagine, you know, the person who is maybe aspiring to to one day be doing what you're doing, you know, collaborating, leading an organization, you know, being in that kind of position that's starting out this journey. So maybe where you were um, back in those mm. early days mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they've got the decision to go, this is the easy path that's, you know, kind of normal. This is the risky path that maybe is a bit more challenging. Like what encouragement will you give to that person to say like, this is, this is why I take the risky path. This is why I take the hard path, not just the easy one. Sure. It's like, you know, it's like any investment decision, <laughs> you know, not to say people's careers are like financial investments, but the higher the risk, the higher the reward uh, to get more senior in an organization, you have to have a wide variety of skills. And if you stay in one relatively narrow, relatively safe path, you are not going to build a variety of skills and, and you're not going to be you need to face into different kinds of people. You need to work with different functions. You need to understand different parts of the business. And that can feel quite risky to move out of a comfort zone. Um, but without making those moves, you, you won't gain the exposure. And I don't mean exposure to, to people. I mean exposure to ideas and challenges that help you build the toolkit to be, to be a leader. Uh, really, really, really helpful. Kendra, when people say, you know, there's this idea that you can't be what you can't see, um, what we need are really great people doing great things that we could look at and we could say, if they could do it, I could do this too. And and for me, you're one of those people that paint, you know, a picture of what, you know, it looks like when people say, I want to aspire to be a great leader and a great collaborative leader and, and someone who's doing great things. And so uh, it's been such a privilege to be able to have a conversation with you and hear a little bit about um, what has gone into that journey to, to become the leader that you are. And so just thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Shane. It's great to talk to you. And yeah, great to be part of it. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.